Hey firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the firecracker department. Oh, it's August, almost September. You know the world is a bit upside down right now. That's a given, it's a given. But there's so much going on that's fantastic and there's so many people that are stepping up in beautiful and bold ways and I want to think about those things because I don't know about you, but it's getting me through. It's getting me through the days and the weeks and the months and the tricky times. So if any of you have reached out to me either publicly or privately and just given me, um, you're doing great, I really appreciate it because it matters. There's been a couple of messages that I've gotten privately recently of people just saying that, you know, they see what Firecrack Department is doing and they love it and they appreciate it. And I have to tell you that matters. It matters. Don't ever think for a second that your messages of keep going, you're doing great, don't matter. They certainly do. Speaking of you're doing great, let's do a couple of firecracker shout outs. Okay. This first shout out is to this series that's making me bonkers. It's so good. I May Destroy You on HBO with Michaela Cole. Holy moly, it's good. It's just, okay, here's the warning. Don't binge it. Like, it's a lot. It's intense. It's a lot. The acting is so good. And Michaela Cole is extraordinary. She's like next level extraordinary. And the storyline is constantly surprising. Um, so there, that's, I really encourage you to go check out I May Destroy You on HBO. The second firecracker shout out is not coming from me. It's coming from my producer editor, Sydney Nielsen. So I put out a, um, a request to the core team of Firecracker Department of any kind of shout outs that people are enjoying. And Sydney immediately wrote back and said, you need to know about The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. So over to you, Sydney. The only difference between lying and acting was whether your audience was in on it, but it was all a performance just the same. I just finished reading The Vanishing Half by Brett Bennett and holy shit. <laughs> I kind of measure how much I'm enjoying or engaged with a book by how many times I react out loud and the number of times my jaw literally dropped. I laughed out loud. I said, oh my God, out loud. I folded pages down, I was Googling stuff. It's an incredible read, and she's just an extraordinary storyteller. Uh, back to Naomi. <laughs> I love that. I love having Sydney Nielsen's voice in amongst this podcast. It's fantastic. She's fantastic. Uh, so there they are, firecracker shoutouts for the day. If you have any firecracker shoutouts that you want me to announce, make sure you reach out to me, firecrackerdepartment at gmail.com. And of course, just go to firecrackerdepartment.com for all your firecracker department needs. All right, on with our guest today. Okay, this gal, she is an amazing creator. She's a, an animator, she's a writer, she's an illustrator, a director, an artist. It's Andrea Dorfman. And you'll know Andrea from her extraordinary work as an animator filmmaker. She's got so many different talents, it's really hard to just give her one title. And I really don't think you need to. She's just an amazing person. She has written and directed shorts, documentaries, a feature length musical drama. Yeah, what can't she do? She's done comedies with Ellen Page. And most recently, she did a new comedy called Spinster with Chelsea Peretti. She's been Emmy nominated. She's adapted a young adult graphic memoir. And even she has this viral video under her belt that was also adapted into a book that she illustrated herself. Whew. 
yeah, she can do anything. Uh, you've probably seen this video or have heard of it. It's called How to Be Alone. It's an amazing piece of art. Andrew Dorfman has taken Tanya Davis's poem and added animation and music to it, and it's stunning. So go and check How to Be Alone. We'll leave the link in our show notes. Her next project is a very 2020 mood. It's called How to Be at Home, and it's sort of a partner to the How to Be Alone. Um, it's one of the first things we talked about when we first started chatting online. And uh, I'm crazy about this gal. I think she's just one of those people that she's so driven uh, by her craft, and I really admire that. So here she is. Let's jump in. I'm so excited for you to hear her stories and to meet this firecracker, Andrea Dorfman. you been doing um sequestered in your creativity uh well for me it doesn't nothing really has changed because i work mostly from home in this room and uh unless i'm shooting a film whereas i'll be out like out and about but right now i'm working on a film that um is an animated film so what you can't see is there's a camera above and i have these lights uh that are pointing down and I'm working actually right here. This is where all my work happens. So since COVID started, I've been uh, working on an animated film. I, I have a, a friend who I collaborated on another film called uh, How to Be Alone. And yeah. the, the person I collaborated with is Tanya Davis. So we're working on a follow-up film called How to Be at Home. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm doing the animation right now. So, so for me, COVID doesn't really change anything. And uh, I've, I mean, the only thing is, is it's, we've been having a heat wave in Halifax and I think this summer has kind of just passed me by. Like I, I'm almost finished the film, but uh, I haven't really been outside a whole lot. <laughs> Do you miss that kind of like, um, cause I, I'm with you to an extent, like I can work a lot at home and then I so crave like social, socializing. I mean, I'm really good on yeah. my own. I like my time alone, but uh, I, I don't know. Yeah. I miss that. Yeah, I don't mind. I mean, I, in Halifax, we don't really have COVID that much. So um, we're kind of COVID free. So we can still get together with people. It's just, it's, to me, what's different is I haven't, like this summer, we're surrounded by lakes and the ocean and everybody goes to the beach when it's super hot out. And I haven't done any of that right. this year so far. So I'm almost finished this film. And when I, when I do finish, I'm definitely going to take advantage of what is left of the summer. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, it's funny. I, I saw, um, just so you know, I saw Spinster at the Whistler film festival. Oh, you did? You were in Whistler? Yeah, so I happened to be there, okay. and then I saw, and I'd heard of you from your short films, your How to Be Alone and um, Heartbeat and Flawed, and so I was really interested to see what, like, where your brain would go in a feature, uh, and it was really, it was great. Okay. I went to Q&A and everything, and um, I mean, I think you're one of a kind. I, I was like, I want to see more of where this brain's going to go. Oh, well, you'll be able to see my new film in a couple of weeks. So I'll, I'll make sure you see it. I, I'm so curious about um, your upbringing, your mentors. Like, where did your brain get molded from? So I think I, as a kid, I was a really sensitive kid who actually had a lot of issues. 
and uh, had older brothers and I grew up in at a time where I think kids were kind of neglected in a way you know I'm 50 and um, or I'm 51 and I think when kids grew up in the 70s like we were not programmed we had no like after school anything and uh, and I think I had this sort of duality of being kind of, you know, like anxious and freaked out by certain things that were happening. But also, I think I was a real observer and a sponge and, and maybe even the beginnings of what an artist would become. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was storing everything. I mean, even now, I think, God, I remember so much. I, and, and it constantly is coming out in the work that I make. Yeah. Uh, but I was actually, I, I thought about something when I was a kid, I had terrible separation anxiety. Yeah, me too. And, uh, did you? Yeah, what did yours look like? Mine looked like I couldn't do sleepovers. My mom would have to come and pick me up at three o'clock in the morning because I'd be a mess. What did yours look like? Yeah, I, mine was, I, it started when I was nine, and I actually made a film called Nine about it. And at the time, I didn't really know what was happening, but I just stopped letting my parents go out at night completely. Like, it was... I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it through that time. And I'd have, you know, and I started to be sick and I did terribly in school. And, and meanwhile, I have these older brothers who were supposed to be babysitting me. And of course they would just, they would also just leave. And so I was, I was kind of terrorized, but at a time where I would never have told on them. And I ended up having to go to a psychiatrist for a couple of years. And, but I think what, I remember at the time, and I was doing terribly in school because I couldn't ever focus. And I remember there were these after school class, or no, for kids who were really smart or gifted or whatever. At the time, they had these Saturday morning classes. And I had a little camera, and I was obsessed with this camera that my dad had given me when I was eight or nine. And it was just like a point and shoot. And, uh, and I love, it was like magic. And I remember they had in these Saturday morning classes, animation like an animation class but because I wasn't one of the smart kids I wasn't one of the gifted kids I wasn't asked to be able to do it but I longed to I remember and I actually think it was the depriving me of something that I genuinely think I would have loved to do that gave me the impetus to always figure it out myself like from there, I ended up take, getting my dad's old Super 8 camera, and I'd play with it. No one ever really showed me how to do this stuff. It was very much the discovery method of learning, and I I had a dark room in my basement, and I was always figuring stuff out. And it, But I think about those Saturday morning classes, and I think of how lucky I was to have resources and outlets, even beyond, even though I wasn't one of these kids who got to do the class, but I think a lot about other kids who um, who also can, you know, like express themselves who could really benefit. And, and, uh, so just to, to come back to your, your question of like, where did this come from? In a funny way, I think it came from a lot of the, the sort of issues, the psychological issues and anxieties I actually had as a kid. And, uh, and then you, you you transform them into material and, and art becomes like a way of making sense of the world and, and, and I guess sort of healing, if that makes sense. A hundred percent. I mean, did you understand why you had that kind of separation anxiety? Did you, did you discover through your art 
where it came from? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't think I discovered until I was an adult. Um, I didn't discover it. I didn't know as a kid. Uh, the psychiatrist would always get me to draw. And I think unconsciously I had, I started to make connections between drawing and calming myself down and, you know, just like the feeling of helping to make sense of the world and, and calm my anxieties, but I wasn't using art to communicate anything. And then I think as an adult, you, you start to put all the pieces together and go like, whoa, I had really good reasons to be afraid that the world was a scary place because then you go like crazy shit was actually happening. And that's why I was so scared. Like you, you don't put that together because when you're a kid, everything is normal. There's nothing that's yeah. not normal. Right. right. So right. I eventually figured it out, but not until, I mean, not until I was a fully formed adult. Yeah. That's a, that's a thing that I think I wrestle with still like looking back and be like, of course I behaved this way based on, on that, yeah. that it's, it's evidence. But the fact that you were yeah. sort of, you were sort of training yourself without even knowing it to turn, turn your struggles into art or through the psychology. Well, I think I was using art to make um, myself calm. Like I always loved art making. Uh, it was, it focused me, um, but I wasn't, I didn't ever as a kid use art to make sense of the world. I think I, I really just used it as a, as a tool to maybe get out of the headspace that I was in, in that moment, which I think a lot of people use art. I think art really saves a lot of people in a lot of different ways. Um, even now, the, the easiest way to feel like a sense of bliss is to get into making art. Yeah. Um, and some people probably, you know, I've heard the word flow and, uh, focus but I think what it is is it's just the act of create and you see it with kids all the time the act of creating just puts them in a zone yeah. and it's a really happy place you know that's so funny I just that made me just think of my mother who would always have like pens and paper in her purse and like when she could see us being like unruly she would just get the pen and paper and we'd go from like these crazy kids like just focused like and and happy because we were being creative as opposed to i don't know not having anywhere to put that energy which i think still yeah. exists as adults that still happens when we're frustrated and then yeah. you know you write your well, mind that's paper. why people that's why we do this because it just puts us but i don't think it's the same because i think phones put us on a more of a train of constant distraction. You actually do the opposite of what you do in art, which is art, you go deep. But when you're on your phone and you're flipping through whatever websites, social media, even photos in your, um, in your albums, I think it actually keeps you from going into that deeper unconscious, which is quite soothing. And I think it, it might keep us more in a state of, of surfacey kind of anxiety. A hundred percent. I totally agree. I was, was there a time, so was art always accessible to you then? Like, did you always have art and were connected to it? Or was there a time where it, it disconnected for you? No, I always had art. My, I don't have any artists in my family, but like I said, my dad was a hobby uh, photographer. Like we had tools of art making. Um, although nobody really showed them to me. Um, 
but my parents were into art. Like we had art on our walls. We had, when I was nine, again, it was that summer I was nine. Um, my mom signed me up to go to the ROM to take uh, art classes. And I did that all summer long and I loved it. It was such a simple premise. All we did, I mean, it was like such a joke in a way because it cost them no money. Right. Um, there were a bunch of kids and we would just every day, it was a day camp, go to a different part of the ROM museum and they would just give us paper and we would just draw what was in front of us. So it would be like rocks one day, dinosaurs one day. You know, you just travel around. That was the whole camp, but, uh, but I loved it. Can you imagine like getting to do that now, like as an adult? I'm just gonna put you in different areas of like the ROM or like different areas of Toronto and you just have an hour to create. Like we just don't yeah. nurture Well, that. I think adults can handle it. it. It's too bad they don't let kids do that because I, now kids, I mean, I have stepkids. I don't know if you have kids, but I see how programmed kids are. Like everything is to the minute and you'd never send a kid to a camp like that now. Now it would be like, okay, so ROM camp, uh, we're going to, you know, have a full instruction and then you're going to have like, you're going to produce these incredible paintings by the end. And it yeah. wasn't like that. Like, I think it was, uh, I mean, there are some things that probably, you know, like that are better now, obviously, but I really do wonder if we don't let kids just drift and get bored and discover themselves at their leisure in a way that we, you know, I certainly felt like I was able to. I mean, do you, do you let yourself do that? Do you let yourself drift into boredom? Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I'm never bored though. That's the thing. Like I'm, I love what I do. And I, as an artist, I never have enough time is what I never seem to have. I have millions of ideas and I wish I had, you know, sometimes I think, oh my God, I wish I had like four lives and I could do all these films. And I, I recently started, I don't, I actually don't do social media that much. And I, I only started doing uh, social media a few months ago. I, I have an Instagram account, but all I do on it is it's a place where I put these small ideas. I make these little books and I post one a week. And the whole point of it in the beginning was I have so many ideas that I wish I could make films out of, but I'll never make film. Like making a film is like running a marathon. It takes a lot of time and energy and money. And, but these books I make in a day. And so I'll take an idea and they're, they're mostly memoir based and I'll take an idea and I'll just turn it into a into this very small story. And it's almost like a vignette, whereas it could be a feature length film, but it's not, it's just something I sit down in a sitting and create and then put out. And there's something very liberating about that because I don't have the time. Right. But you're holding on to the idea. Like I do, I, I'm similar to you where I'm like, oh my God, all these ideas. And some of them might just be an Instagram post. And that's where that, that piece lives. But then something else might spin into something more, I don't know, in a, in a bigger sense of a project. Is, how do you start yeah, your projects? Yeah, I, you always start with animation? Because that seems like that's your, your foundation. No, it's a, and it's not my foundation. I actually, so Spencer was my fourth feature. And I've also made documentary and short films, animated films, uh, um, music videos. I've done television. Like I do, I've done books. I do a lot of different things. Um, I started animation uh, a little over 10 years ago because I wanted to do something that was cheap. 
I wanted to make a film that didn't require raising a million dollars and hiring 30 people and um, creating something that took up a lot of resources. I wanted to be able to do something that I could just do on my own. So every project I, I do now has, um, I think about, well, what would be the best vessel for it? What would be the best format? Like some, uh, an idea might be one of these tiny books. Another one might be a full-length feature film. Another one might make the most sense to be a five-minute animation or one-minute animation. And so to me, I, I look really hard at what the, the story is and it, and it, in a way, it speaks to me and tells me how it needs to be seen in the world. Yeah. yeah. And did you always, I mean, completely honestly, I've actually had projects that I've thought that the only way these projects could happen is when it would have an animation, but I'm not a painter. I'm not an artist, a visual artist at all. So did you ever come to a place like where you had to learn how to be an artist or you had to learn how to be a filmmaker? Like which came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, that's a funny question. I, I mean, you kind of just learn it all. And, and I think the biggest myth is that any of these platforms or um, mediums are unattainable to anybody. They're all learnable. I never went to film school. I never went to animation school. And I do both. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I remember once learning that people stop drawing most people when they're in elementary school at some point. And it's like a language. It's like if you were learning Russian as a kid and then just stopped learning and then tried to pick it up when you were 30, you'd probably remember a bit of what you learned when you were a kid. But uh, you're not just because you're 30, you're going to be amazing at it. And drawing is the same way. If you stop drawing when you're seven and then try to pick it up as a 30-year-old, you're going to draw like a seven-year-old. Right. Like there's no way around it. But in a week of drawing instruction, you're going to draw like a 30-year-old. Like it really is just learning how to do it. And, and drawing is learning how, you know, people think drawing is learning how to like look at the page and, and draw what's in your brain. But drawing is actually learning how to look. And I, I think people don't really understand that um, and also don't understand how attainable it is. So, so all of these different mediums that I use are, are like, they're things I just learned on my own. I was a camera assistant. I went to art school. Um, and then when I came out, I wanted to join the film industry and I, I was interested in photography always. So I, I thought I'd be a cinematographer and I joined the camera union and I learned the apprentice way, how to, how to shoot films and, and climb that ladder. Um, which was an amazing experience, but ultimately I didn't want to be a, a cinematographer. I wanted to tell the stories and every way along, you know, like when I wanted to, to learn how to make feature films, I read a ton of books. Um, like the internet was barely around then it was the late nineties, but I read tons of screenwriting books and books that directors had written and I'd been on set. And then when I wanted to learn animation, YouTube was around. So I call it like YouTube university. I just looked up, tons of how to make animation videos and um yeah it's amazing what people can learn i think knowledge is uh it's accessible and it's the best thing about the internet and it's an incredible power to be able to teach yourself how to learn uh which everybody has the tools to is um 
yeah, it's it's powerful. I think Every, you could do it. If you wanted to make an animated film, yeah. uh, you could do it. I could do it. I think that's well. I think there's a disconnect. Like I love the I love the completion. Like I love your animation. Like I started when I started watching your animation stuff. I'm like, oh, this is so my jam. The the watercolors <laughs> and pen and even like with the stuff with the girls of Maru, it's just gorgeous. And it's, it's such um, a deepening of the story too. Like that animation brings such a new level of depth to the story. Do you think like with, do you think it's with all art that, that the more like it's sort of that, um, the lesson of just like, just, just do the art that you want to learn. Like if you want to be an artist, get up every morning and be an artist. If you want to be a, yeah. an actor, get up every morning and do things that actors do. Do you think that's the same across the board? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, that is a good question because I think that if you don't want to learn it, you might be closing yourself off to a form of expression that could really enrich your practice somehow. You're so um, right. And I think there's something, and there's something to be said for being, you know, it's uncomfortable not knowing how to do something. It makes us really, I guess on some level, feel vulnerable and humiliated to be um bad at things so i th i think that's probably why people avoid learning new things you know in the most simple way of putting it so you do need that that engine that propulsion to to want the end result and and i guess as far as animation goes i just loved certain animation out there animators work and i wanted to learn how to do it and and i and it's the same with you know film literature animation it's all the same thing it's all storytelling and i think as I, it probably goes back to as a kid i loved like most kids stories because they put me through this emotional journey that helped me understand who i was and and helped me feel often comforted and so as an adult as a storyteller i'm sometimes unconsciously but mostly consciously wanting to achieve that as well yeah. so for me to 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 learn a new skill whether it's animation or editing you know at some point i had to teach myself how to edit or use a new digital camera it is a means to an end and i tend not to learn um like i didn't learn a program called after effects until i absolutely needed to use it and then i learned it yeah. And, and it really has helped me. And, and often, you know, it takes me through a portal into an even bigger world of what I didn't understand how to do. But, but I also collaborate with a lot of people and I let them be experts at their discipline and help, you know, like elevate the work that I'm doing. I mean, it's why I love feature filmmaking is, you know, there's, there's so many key creatives like the cinematographer and the editor and the art director and um the gaffer and you know these people who contribute immensely the actors and and every person is somebody who in my opinion like i'd never make the same film without all of those contributors and and i see myself as a director as a person who's just trying to keep the the story in between the lines and the rails while allowing other people to contribute and put their best foot forward and and make the work so much better than it ever could have been yeah. did you ever take acting classes i did well as a kid i loved drama i was a total drama kid like 
you know, I was always in plays and I always, I love being behind the camera or behind this, like on, on the stage crew. And, um, so I did take as a teenager and a preteen, you know, acting classes just through school. I've never taken anything professional, but one of the most valuable classes I took workshops, I took as a director was a directing for actors workshop, a directing actors workshop by a woman named Judith Weston. Uh, she's actually an actor, uh, lives in LA, and she teaches these acting classes, but for directors. And really they're about how to communicate with actors. And it was so valuable. I took so much away from mm. that workshop. It was maybe five days long. Correct. You really have to understand what actors are going through on, you know, on the most profound level. Like it, it's just building trust and it's going to really scary places often. And um, but I, I think for all the acting I've done as a kid, that was the most affecting and meaningful. And when did you know that what your art was, was actually what your career was and it crossed over into being a profession? Do you remember that moment? Hmm. Yeah, I, because I, when I left art school and I went right into working on film crews, which is a very intense world. I don't know wow. how well you know it. Um, it's uh, really, it's all consuming. And because I was on the camera crew, I was in the camera department, I had access to, and it was film then, I had access to what are called short ends. So I was always making my own films on the side while working, like just experimenting. And I was part of um, the Atlantic Filmmakers Cooperative, which is a, a film, co-op in Halifax. It's like Lyft in Toronto. Right. And so, but I didn't, you know, like it takes a lot of courage to go from getting a regular paycheck on film crews to being a self-sustaining artist. And so for a long time, I did both. I, I made my own films and I'd send them off to film festivals, but I worked in the film industry and I kept doing this until my films, my short films, gradually got bigger and bigger and bigger. And then I made a feature film. And at that point, I was still working as a camera assistant, but there's a TV show in Halifax that was being shot called uh, Street Sense. And it was a show for youth about marketing to, um, like how to be a smart, uh, like consumer. Jonathan Torres. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, so, we all love Jonathan Torres. Uh, I don't know anybody who doesn't. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome. And um, so I, I ended up being asked to direct on that show uh, after I made my first feature. So it was somewhere in there that I went from making money in one area and making my art in another, just starting to blend the two. And it was years of just, uh, you know, working hard, making, you know, like any artist, I don't spend a lot of money. I don't have a lot of things. I you know, you kind of get used to living at a certain level of like not consuming a lot because it all kind of goes into your art. And then I continued and eventually, you know, I'd work on Street Sense, which was one season a year. And I did that for three years and then I made another feature and, and I just kept getting more and more opportunities. And now, I mean, I always feel like it could all go away. 
you know, I, even though I made a feature film and I have this other project, it's I, like, there's I no certainty. I think that's the thing that doesn't go away is the feeling that it may all, all go away. And I think that's yeah, yeah. the board. Like if you talk to celebrities that are established, like high level celebrities, they're still going, well, this might be the last film I make. Yeah, yeah, there's no security. And, and I don't mind it. I mean, I don't have kids. I have a partner. I don't own property. Like there are a lot of things that I don't have that other people would really want, I think, for security reasons. Um, but for me, the ability to, to live as a working artist, um, it far outweighs than any of those other wants that I might have had. Do you remember the moment when you owned the title of artist? Was it somewhere, because I know that like you had success, I mean, I don't know if you had success fast, but uh, Parsley Days was in 2000 and that was named one of Tiff's top 10. So that had to be a moment of like, okay, okay, Andrea's got, got on the right track. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, it's, it's funny because something like that, I've really learned not to pay attention to what other people how other people perceive me as an artist or even the films I make. And I don't read any reviews. I don't read about myself online. Uh, although I just recently read my Wikipedia page and there's yeah. so many things that are wrong. Yeah, that, don't, like, that. don't start there. So it's, it, no. And I think that, no, I, but I was curious because people were, you know, every time I get publicity, people will go to that you know, to get facts. I'm like, where did you learn that? Anyway, um, but the point being is that it really is something internal. And, and I actually avoid labels in general. I don't, I don't even like calling myself a filmmaker or, and, and it's usually other people who, who will put the label. And then once you're labeled as something, they, uh, you know, they, other people will bring whatever their idea of who you are to that label. So, so for me, I, yeah, I don't, I don't even really, I mean, I use label like artist and filmmaker as shorthand so other people, but know what I am. But I think for years, I, I just called myself generally a filmmaker, but I'm more arty, I guess, than other, than other filmmakers. So people will be like, well, you're an artist. And, and at one point I moved to Toronto and I opened uh, with a whole bunch of friends this knitting cafe and then people will be like oh so now you are a knitter and like it so it's funny isn't it you know I well, I think people I don't think I ever really had a moment it's like oh I think people need to know yeah I don't know why they need to know but I found that all my life when people are like oh so are you a knitter or are you a filmmaker I was like well why can't mm -hmm. I be both was there something yeah. that happened that taught you not to read reviews and not to worry about labels? Yeah, like probably the, well, I mean, I've always felt the limitation of labels, even since I was a kid. Um, you know, just uh, being labeled a girl is limiting. And, and, and it might've been because I have brothers. And I read also that you, you felt that you kind of grew up in a, um, I won't, not for want of a better word, but sort of gender-free uh, family. Like it wasn't a specific like yeah. who is the girl. Well, do you do you have siblings? I have an older brother. Yeah. 
And how old are you? Or you don't have to say. We're three more. years. We're three years different. But I was always a tomboy. I was always like, but basically mm -hmm. because then I could do the things that everybody could do. Like if, like I, you know, I wore, I wore pants so I could run, and dresses mm -hmm. felt like restricting to me. So it was all about being physical as a kid. Um, mm -hmm. Now I don't. Yeah. Have to so I felt, and I think when you have. Like whoever your siblings are, you feel uh, equal to them, you know, no matter what. So I think I always felt really entitled, even though my brothers were older, one was four years older, one's five years older. I always felt very entitled to be equal to them. So there's that. I also think the world has become more binary compared to like the 70s was a funny time to grow up because you know, there wasn't pink bikes and blue bikes and, you know, everybody wore brown and orange and green and purple. And You're right. Oh my God. It, yeah. So like when I had a bike, I had my brother's old purple bike yeah. and I would never wanted a pink bike. But with my stepkids, when my stepson needed a bike, he wasn't going to wear, use his older sister's sparkly pink bike with the tassels he needed a new bike so I think that there was you know I wore all my brother's clothes when I was a kid and so my best friends were boys and none of these things really mattered and I often thank god if I was born now I probably would be a transgender boy because it'd be so much freer you know if those were the options I was never a kid who was into hair or makeup or or dolls or anything and that's not because I was like a boy, though. At the time, it was just that was my preference. And it, um, yeah. It was also your, your family. Like, I, I had the same sort of experience where I wore up my brother's clothes. And I wore goalie skates because he was a goalie. So I had yeah. his, his uh, hand-me-down. And then I remember going to the skating rink and all the girls in their cute little white fuzzy skates were like what are those and i'd be like they're goalie skates <laughs> so proud like <laughs> it's such an interesting time because i think you're you're right that they we are in this sort of you know uh, i was just talking to somebody about casting and how more and more people aren't putting down gender for roles they're just putting like this is this person this is this person and yet it is a time when when it's when it's really important and sensitive and crucial to know people's uh, identification, like how do you identify is a really important question that I, I'm sensitive towards each other. But at the same time, I don't, I, I only care if I get it wrong. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm. that's, yeah, I think, well, I think we're going, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm so interested. Like I have friends who have, um, let's say a transgender girl, little girl, who wants to wear dresses. And I think, wow, when I was a kid, I felt comfortable being a girl, but I never would have worn a dress. So I think we're at a time where everybody's idea of a gender is very different. Like my idea of what a girl is, isn't going to be their idea of a yeah. girl or, you know, and which is totally fine. So really it does come down to whatever, who, whomever wants to be called their gender. Like it's up to the individual what they want to be called, but what they won't have control over is what anybody else thinks that gender is defined by. Right. And I mean, I think we'll eventually move into a time, I hope, where we're genderless because 
the problem with gender in an unequal society and a patriarchy is there will be genders, the, you know, right now that are just not treated equally and with respect, they're treated discriminatorily. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, do you, I feel like you've, well, here's the question. Have you always been a conscious uh, filmmaker? I feel like you create really consciously in your stories. Yeah, I, I mean, I, but do, are some people not? I feel like, like, I don't know. That's a great, yeah, you're right. But I guess my point is like, I think that some people create for different purposes in their stories or they, they create for maybe more commercial sense, but I feel like you have approached things through such an artist's lens. It has a very conscious approach. Has that always been the way for you? Or do you remember a project in the past that you're like, yeah, that one, that one slipped by the old conscious meter? <laughs> no, I mean, I think I, I think probably what I, I begin with is myself. And in the sense that even the fiction films, even the documentary, I have to connect to it someplace, like locate in myself, some place that connects to what I'm filming. And, um, and, and a lot of it is directly autobiographical. And so, and because I am a huge uh, self-examiner, I think there probably is a lot of conscious um, analytical sort of self-reflective thinking that goes into it. It has that depth. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, I think it's the only way, even when my writing collaborator, Jennifer DL and I are working together, I often have to, if we're working around a fictional, about a fictional character, I have to find a relative story in my own life that makes it feel authentic mm -hmm. to, you know, so much of writing is the motivation of why characters do what they do. And I really need to find that in myself, in who I am, to understand why a character would do what they're doing. Have you ever had that challenge? Like, have you ever been approached for a project and sort of had to find a way into it that wasn't as natural as you starting your own project? No, because I only do my own work. <laughs> I really only do my own work. Yeah. Um, and something like The Girls of Meru, which is not my work, I had been... At that point, I'd been going to Meru so much with this organization to make films about their work that I was very much inside of it by the time I made the documentary. But I don't make any, I don't direct other people's films. And I've, I've gotten lots of scripts over the years where people have said, oh, I love your sensibility. Would you be interested in this script? And I never connect to it. I really can't, I, I'm just not that kind of director. So even the way Jennifer and I work, is um, we had actually started out co-writing Spinster, but co-writing is hard. It, uh, oh. it doesn't really work. You're not in the same place. So we come up with a story together and then she goes and writes and I'll direct. But because I'm there right from the beginning of the, you know, the building blocks of the story, um, I, the story I feel completely okay with. It feels like my own story. Mm -hmm. uh, even if I haven't actually written the script. Yeah, and you felt that same way with the Girls of Meru, which is a beautiful. Well, just, it's in, that's it an incredible. Was, that's an incredible gift to uh, education and awareness too of what's going on over there that many people mm -hmm. don't even know. 
yeah, mo most people don't know. I mean, I think that that story has been, I mean, it, it really will, um, it's a, such a specific audience because I think that the audience, the human rights audience that it has found and um, the legal community finds that story, you know, incredibly useful. But it was, it's a hard film. It's a hard film for a lot of people to, to understand, but, um, or to, I think to really take in. And one of the communities in Canada, anyway, that has been able to use that film, it's about a precedent setting case where 160 girls represented by a legal team from all over the, the world, but from Commonwealth countries in particular, uh, they took the Kenyan government to, to court um, and sued them for not protecting them from being sexually assaulted, from being raped. And uh, they won. And to take a government to court for, create, for contributing to a culture of impunity um, had never been done before. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government being the police. And that's something that in Canada, the, um, the community that has done the inquiry into the missing and murdered Indigenous women is very interested in. So a story like that can translate to, to really specific circumstances and, and different parts of the world, the femicide down in, uh, in Mexico, for example. And um, there are different pockets of impunity all over the world where the government could be held responsible. So that's just an, an example of, of, I guess, a, a story that was hard to tell um, for me as a filmmaker and doesn't really find an easy audience in a world that ultimately, want, you know, largely wants to be entertained by film and stories and, and whatnot. So, so you're right, it's mostly educational. Yeah, I mean, although your animation is in there, so there's a level of, of artistry through it as well. And how did making that film affect your films after that? Because I felt like that was, well, that I mean, I know you've been involved with documentaries and, and but it felt like in comparison to How to Be Alone or something like Flawed, it was a really different kind of movie. So how did that affect? Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, it was one of the hardest films I ever made. Uh, first of all, just to understand the legal, um, the legalese that everybody was speaking and, and what the film uh, needed to communicate, which was, it was really a film about a court case and the process of, of a court case and um, ultimately achieving victory. And then what do you do with that victory? Uh, so that's the arc of the film. And yet it was about real people and real girls. So. That's why I use animation to to really show that these are these are kids and these stories drawn from the legal case they they were the evidence of the case um, are based around real people. So it was a way to protect the girls, not show the girls. I never showed their I faces or interviewed yeah. the girls. Yeah. And then, um, but I think the way it, it didn't necessarily affect the work I did after, but I. But again, I really have to locate that place of deep meaning within me to, to make anything. And, and it was a no brainer with that film, uh, The Girls of Meru, because when the human rights lawyers originally came to me to ask me to make short communications pieces 
that um, they could use for fundraising because all the lawyers were for nothing. And, uh, and that's how I got on board in the beginning. And then when I realized at some point, if I could only string them all together, then I could, I could tell the whole story. And they loved that idea. And so I went to the film board and asked. And, um, but I worked on that film on and off for eight years or something. I mean, I've been to Kenya 10 times over, that, over those years. Amazing. Do you, do you feel like your perspective, I mean, of course it's going to change as you grow, but I know there was an article that you were part of that said that you felt like we were all always alone. And maybe that was around before you met your partner or you were just made flawed. And I wonder if that's still a theme that you're bringing into your filmmaking now that we're all alone. It's the theme of, you know, people say that the filmmakers make the same film every time. My, that is the theme of my film. Um, from the first film I made, like, uh, you know, nine, about being nine. It was about separation anxiety. It was about that feeling of deep, deep aloneness. And every film, Parsley Days, Love That Boy, uh, all Heartbeat and Spinster are all, all the characters, the main characters, um, are alone. And, and I think what, you know, if you work with a theme, um, your whole life, and, and I think you just keep going deeper and deeper into it. I think what I'm exploring is what does that ad admission and embracing of our aloneness give us? And, and I think now I understand that when you, when you go in so deeply and embrace the aloneness, you find an incredible freedom. And I think that that most people don't get there because we're so distracted and we're so seduced by romance and, and this idea that we need to couple or not even be alone. Like we need to be around people all the time that we don't, we don't get to that place of, of deep reflection and, and, um, yeah, it, it's a place that we can locate in ourselves. I mean, I think people do, and maybe that's just the wisdom of getting older and, and people achieve it through all sorts of things like yoga and meditation and self-help and therapy. And but I think that, yeah, and medication. Meditation, medication, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and so I think that that's what my films are all about. I mean, I think with Spinster, it's it, it really takes that idea to the most, obvious in exploring a woman who finally just gives up on the idea of of romance at a time in her life where she's sick of deciding that her life is less than mm -hmm. if um if she doesn't achieve these certain markers mm -hmm. is there is there something that you feel i don't know about you but i'm always like looking for the balance in life so if i'm working too much or I'm not socializing enough, or I'm socializing too much, I'm looking for that balance. Is there something that you're missing right now in your, in your recipe? Yeah, I, th I think this summer, I, I mean, I, so I took on making this film, for example, like, I, I usually have a lot of balance in my life. I'm really good at making sure I have, you know, I do a lot of, of, like, I have a lot of rituals in my life and routines. Yeah. And I, I, and maybe because I don't have kids, 
I was able to, to achieve that. But for some reason this summer, because I've never worked on a film, this film, how to be at home under such a stringent deadline. And I think it's because I'm part of this, um, it's through the national film board and there, there are something like 20 films that are part of this. And, and they maybe, I think they want to release them around the same time. And, uh, so I'm, I'm feeling for the first time making a film like this, that I'm under somebody, I don't, I'm not good having a boss. I don't have a boss. I don't like to be told what to do. And I love my producer, but the last three weeks when I found out I couldn't keep extending the deadline because I've extended it four times, I've not been enjoying it as much as I was the first month, the first half of working on this film. I loved it. And it, like a lot of people in COVID in the pandemic, I felt like I had more time than ever, you know, we're not planning for the future and, and or going away. So, but uh, the last month I've really felt like, hmm, this is too much work. And I love the film. I'm so happy with it, but I, I actually only have two days left to work mm-hmm. on it and then it'll be off into the world. So, so in that case, what's the thing that's, that's out of balance, like that you need less deadlines, you need less bosses around you? No, just that I'm, I'm working too much. Right. You know, I, that's right. what it literally is. Like I'm in a room with no window. I mean, I have a window, but I have a black curtain in front of it. And, uh, I live on the ocean and I should be swimming. Yeah. I haven't gone to the beach yet this summer. I haven't, usually I, I hop on my bike and I go to the lake like once every other day. And I haven't done any of this. I, I walk my dog in the morning and I walk my dog in the evening, but in between I'm just in this room. Yeah. And I can tell it's not good for my body. It's not good for, even though I love the work, it's just, it's too much work, mm-hmm. you know? And I, I like to, to see other people. I like to do things for people and help people, you know, like it's all part of the, the person who I like to be and feel mm-hmm. the most fulfilled. Um, and yet I do recognize that this film has, has value and it's an important film. I think people will really appreciate it. Tanya is an incredible poet. Oh, she's amazing. And she's written such gorgeous, yeah. So yeah. The, this is, I'm animating to a poem that she's written and it is so beautiful. I think it will, it's just gonna blow people away. Well, this, the How to Be Alone poem is, had my husband and I in tears in like the first three minutes. We were like, oh, this is gonna make us cry. Yeah. We thought this yeah. was a fun short film with animation. It was really beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what this is going to make people cry. Absolutely. Mission accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to wrap it up with a couple of firecracker questions. Say that ten times fast. Okay. No, can't. What do you want to be best known for? Oh my gosh, these are oh these questions are so hard. I, I mean, I get in. You know, when you're a creator, and I I don't have kids, my creations are the the art, the work that I do, the films that I do. I think there there's that. That's what I'll be known for, no matter what. You know, because I'm putting things in the world. Um, but of course, the most important thing is just who you know who I was to the people I loved, and uh, you know, it's weird to think of myself in this sort of like past tense way, but I, I'm the kind of person I can't even go to bed if I've had a fight with somebody. I really stew over if I think somebody's mad at me and, 
And so I'm always going out of my way to, to try and make things better and apologize. I just can't be that person. So I, so I guess I just want to, if I think of what I'd want to be known for, it's that, uh, that I didn't make people feel bad. Oh, I like that a lot. I don't know if you know Brent Carver at all, who passed away last week, but he... Uh, yeah, yeah, well, I know who he was. For me, he epitomized that fantastic, beautiful balance of being such an extraordinary, unique performer, actor, singer, and then also being one of the kindest people. Like, everybody reverberates mm -hmm. his kindness in the world, so I feel like that's, that's the legacy. Um, all right, two words to describe your mental state right now. I mean, you're really catching me at this, uh, at uh, the deadline. I would say hot and tense. <laughs> hot because I'm in this room with, with these lights and I can't even turn them on off for our interview because I'd be in pitch darkness because right. I can't get the, you know, the curtain. So I'm constantly hot. I know, and I turned my fan off and I'm like, ah. Yeah. So, and I'm working over the work all the time. Like it's right here. And I think I'm just getting tense. So I'm always taking breaks to do like yoga and, yeah. and uh, yeah. 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 But um, I feel, but I also feel really um, excited about this film. So hot isn't, is really a physical state, but I think I'm excited, but I'm also tense. Like I'm under tension right now. I like hot because it can be like your temperature, but also I'm hot for this. Project. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, what has been your favorite mistake? Something that you, that at the time might have felt like a mistake, but something you learned from? Yeah, God. I mean, I'm a huge, huge, like, um, disbeliever that they're mistakes because they always yeah. create, uh, you it know, opportunity. Be a it's not a mistake. It's and, like a discovery. Uh, but yeah, like, oh, that is a really tough one. Cause I, cause it just immediately goes to, to like every breakup I ever went through and every dysfunctional friendship I ever had and every job I didn't get. Yeah. And, uh, you know, every, I think that as a filmmaker, there are certain status markers that, uh, like if, you get into TIFF and I've had films that have gotten into TIFF and I've had, and like Spencer did not get into TIFF. And so I'll use that in, as an example. I think we can start to believe that unless we hit these certain markers that we are uh, a failure, we didn't achieve something, but I've come to understand that my work is work that will always find an audience and that audience that it finds need needs it. And, and embraces the work and loves it. Um, but it won't necessarily find the audience of a, a specific kind of status, if that mm. makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it always, I, I feel like it's always embraced and that the opportunities lie in not going a certain place that, that has a, a societal, um, yeah idea of success maybe yeah yeah I'm lo-fi I think I'm a lo-fi filmmaker I get it I get it um what uh what's something that you haven't done yet but you know you have to do <sighs> that I have to do something that I have to do um, I think I have to make a film about a good friend of mine who died I want I want that's something I would like to do and I think about a lot I I think about that 
And um, I would like to make a film about my mother as well. But I can't do those things now. You know, you have to, mm -hmm. films also bubble up at the right time, like all art. Uh, you know, you, you, you face that art when it makes the most sense to you. So those are two films I would like to make stories um i'd like to make in a material way but i i'm not ready to yet yeah i get it um my final question is what advice would you have given to the younger andrea when she was 10 or 11 when i was 10 or 11 um oh my god that was like the the heart of uh like my psychosis yeah. at that age 10 9 10 11 and 12 were when I look back at those were the worst years. If I was there, I think I would have just given my younger self a hug. Ugh. I think I was a kid who desperately needed a hug and I just couldn't get it. And so I think that's what I would do. I love that. I've so enjoyed speaking with you. I'm so glad that I have a- Yeah, that's great. You have some amazing questions. Well, I'm super curious about your brain. I think um, it's so funny. I'm from your Q&A at the uh, Whistler Film Festival and you came on stage and I'm like I just want to know everything about her like because even the way you shot Spinster like you kind of came at it through um, such a colorful approach like I know Halifax a little bit I've spent some time there but you approached it like I could feel the incline <laughs> does that make sense of yeah, the Halifax yeah. Hills I could feel it like in your shots that you took but I could also feel like that odd feeling of sometimes being in buildings that are above everybody and then sometimes being in like the ground floor of Halifax. It was, it was a really um, yeah, yeah. emotional journey. That's so cool. Somebody once told me, and I think I bring, I actually bring this to every film. It was a long time ago. Like I was, I was likely a kid. Never, sh never take a photograph head on, always go above or below. Right. And then, I took that and it, it, and then when you take that in the extreme, um, not just a little bit below and a little bit above, it actually gives you a whole different perspective on the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I, a lot of the shots are sort of bird's eye or low angle. And that's interesting. Yeah. I mean, that you can say that about life, like never take it head on, like, like approach it from different sides to experience. Yeah. Absolutely. I love We're going to make so many t-shirts based on your quotes from this interview, Andrea. So many. <laughs> thank you so much. I, I can't wait to see this. Well, thank you. Okay. Well, I'll make sure that you get the link. I would love that. All yeah. right. Best of luck. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with me. Okay. That was fun. <laughs> Bye now. Bye. I mean, it's just amazing how many firecrackers are out there with what all seems like all the ambition and drive just to get shit done. Like there's such drivers out there and it inspires me to take action. I would love to know what it inspires you to do, what kind of action it makes you want to do. Make sure you follow Andrea on Instagram at Dorfman O Rama to catch one of her other talents. She also does these great little mini things on her Instagram, so go check those out. Tag us in your favorite. Her newest one is inspired by her new film Spinster and it's such a beautiful, gentle, unique way to tell stories. I love it and my producer, Sydney Nielsen, is obsessed. She won't stop talking about it. We have meetings, she's like, hey, have you seen what Andrew Dorfman, I get it, I get it, she's fantastic. 
I'm kidding. Talk as much as you want. I love it. And don't forget, you can watch Spinster on Apple TV, iTunes, or Vimeo right now. Check out our show notes for the link. And then follow the film on Instagram and Twitter at spinster underscore movie. I saw it, as I mentioned before, in Whistler. And um, I, it's just a really beautiful film. And you see Halifax in all its beauty. Um, you see Chelsea Peretti doing like a full feature, which is such a treat because I'm such a fan of hers as a comedian. And you get to see her dive into some depth. You get to see Susan Kent, one of our fantastic comedians from Canada. Um, and she's delightful too. I just love comedians when you know they're funny and then they also go, I could also give you some oomph. And Susan Kent and Chelsea Peretti give you some oomph. Let us know on Instagram or Twitter at firecrackerdept what you liked about this episode. What made you laugh? What made you think? What made you stop and go, oh, I haven't thought about things before like that. Just whatever. We'd love to hear from you. If you love the podcast, let us know. Give us a review. You know that always makes a difference for us. It really helps bring our podcast to more people. And we always love hearing from you. So thanks. Big news, everyone. Big news. September 13th. Mark this in your calendar. We are doing our second annual Firecracker Department TIFF party. Last year, we just had the best time. People got to know each other, we drank coffee, we had champagne and orange juice because it was a brunch, that's what you do. Uh, we had networking going on, creative sparks were flying, and it was so rewarding. This year we're going to do all that but online so we can be international and include firecrackers from all over the world. And I can't wait to see who turns up. So go to firecrackerdepartment.com, subscribe to our newsletter, and you will keep in touch with all the TIFF party buzz and biz. You're going to want to subscribe to the newsletter because that's where it's happening. Hope we'll see you there virtually because it's way better when you're there. Like I always say, there's space for everyone within the Firecracker Department. And if you're not already part of our Facebook members group, why not? There's tons of stuff going on over there. That's our central hub for connecting with the Firecracker community and where all our event reminders, conversations, and connections happen, uh, like our sparkler department, which is little firecrackers. So if you have kids, go check out the sparkler department. Or are you an actor or a writer? Because we have the script department and writing department as well. Weekly, the writing department posts a prompt on Mondays so that you can do that anytime. Plus, we do a little writing gym with bursts, so you don't even have to prepare anything. We do that on Zoom every Thursday. Come and join us over there. Every Sunday, we host a community brunch on Zoom so that new and current firecrackers looking to meet other creative people like you can hang out and connect. And it's always really fun. We drink coffee. We often wear our pajamas and have bathrobes, and that's the way it rolls. We always want to know what you're doing and how we can help you move forward creatively. Monthly, we host a script department reading series, a wellness department meditation, live spark chats on Instagram with past podcast guests, and even a movie club. Yeah, there's a lot going on, and there's a department and a seat for everyone at the firecracker table. Come find yours, share your voice with the world, and connect with your people. Stay in the loop with everything I just threw at you by subscribing to our newsletter at firecrackerdepartment.com. Big, huge, ginormous thanks to my whole team. I'm throwing my arms up. Ginormous! Everyone who's in Los Angeles, Toronto, Vancouver, New York, and all the way over in the UK. Thanks to all our core members for everything that they do online and off to make this 
community, this firecracker department growing into what it is becoming, which is so important to me. And from what I'm hearing from the feedback, it's important to you too. So thank you. Big thanks to Jeff Militinovic and Igor Karila for our theme music. We love it. And thanks to you. Yeah, you, the one listening right now, for taking the time to listen because we know there's a lot of options out there and we so appreciate you taking the time to listen to us. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. I'm Naomi, and we'll see you next time on the Firecracker Department. Boop, boop, boop.